Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Skeleton Keys. I'm Tori Yates-Orr. And I'm John Booker. And together, we're going to try to unlock the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. We often get great guests on this show, but I don't know that I've been more excited about the guest that we have today, or for that matter, the topic that we have today. I fangirled <laughs> a little bit in the interview. I'm not going to lie. What are, what are we talking about today? Guys, we're talking about the heroine's mm. journey. Yeah, mm. that's right. So good. One guess about who we might have. Oof. On the pod. Yeah. The creator of this, the author of The Heroine's Journey, Maureen Murdoch. The OG of The Heroine's Journey. The OG. Like, the heroine. So amazing. So amazing. Cannot wait to get into this, but we're actually talking about The Heroine's Journey, specifically about one particular journey. And that is Angela Abar from Watchmen. I don't know that a show has so early hit it out of the park as Watchmen did. I mean, this show is about as close to a perfect season of television as I might have ever seen, Tori. I'm going to agree. I just think it's perfect. It's perfect as one season. It's one of those things that I think... They created to be this one season. They told their story in their episodes and they're done. And they nailed it. Like every part of it's so, oh my gosh. Like even watching it, I was like, how did they do this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How? Well, and and, you know, the, the thing is, anyone who, you know, has any knowledge of Watchmen at all, if they knew what the show was before they ever, you know, watched the show, they, they're aware, of course, you know, that Watchmen was one of the highest rated graphic novel comic books of all time. You know, this is, this is Alan Moore and, and Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore, you know, is, is, is hailed by many to be, you know, the, the greatest modern comic book writer uh, that exists. And so, you know, when they were talking about adapting Watchmen in any way, shape or form, almost universally, people were like, oh, bad idea, bad idea. Mm-hmm. You know, Watchmen had been turned into a a film, which, again, people either love or hate. But it it just, you know, didn't have the the universal audience that, you know, the comic book did. So when news broke that Watchmen was not going to be a remake of the graphic novel, but it was actually going to to be a a sequel of sorts that plays around in the same world with some of uh, the characters, people became a little more interested, but there was still just a lot of doubt and speculation uh, about the the possibilities uh, of of what such a adaptation, you know, of, of this world could hold. But I don't think anyone was prepared for what it actually was. And it's a complete reimagining yeah. of what a hero yes. is, but done in this world that is known yes. for this, that is done in the Watchmen yeah. universe. And it's done in a way that feels more human, but at the same time, it's it's dealing with history, it's dealing with legacy, it's dealing with otherworldly yeah. power. They've added so much to it that to me, it just, it made the Watchmen universe yeah. better. And that usually does not happen in a situation where you have this happen, where you have this kind of offshoot from a graphic novel that is so revered. Well, and in so many ways, you know, the graphic novel was so complex, Mm -hmm. wonderfully complex, but they somehow managed to simplify this story for the show where it's, you know, for those who are looking for a simple explanation, it's, you know, basically the story of uh, Angela Abar, you know, who's played by Regina King. She's this detective, you know, who who moonlights as as Sister Knight, uh, this, this superhero known as Sister Knight, and she's investigating the murder of her friend, who's the chief of chief of police. 
and she ends up discovering secrets, you know, about the the situation that's going on in the world on a much larger scale. It's it's really a pretty simple idea, you know. It's it's somebody that uncovers some much larger plot while investigating some very small local event. It kind of plays on those tropes of, I mean, it's very, that on the surface is very much like a traditional kind of superhero story. Oh, and by the way, if you're listening to this episode and are sensitive to spoilers, we are going to be spoiling things. So you might want to skip to another episode if you're sensitive to spoilers (laughs) and have not seen HBO's Watchmen yet. I, I think you know, to to build on your idea there of the way that the, the show uh, takes traditional superhero tropes and, and it sort of plays with them, if, if we will, mm-hmm. in the very opening moments, in the very opening scene of the first episode, we're not going to talk about every episode, but the, there's so much significance, I believe, in the, the first, you know, 10 minutes of, of the first episode where an actual historical event is is mirrored mm-hmm. the the tragedy in Tulsa but also they managed to work into the the story this mirroring of the most known superhero origin story of all time and, and of course I'm referring to Superman so we have this little boy whose home is being destroyed his father comes and puts him in a vehicle that's going to take him somewhere else. That vehicle ends up crashing in a field and the little boy rises and becomes a superhero. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you would say, well, you just told the story of Superman. Yes, but this is exactly what happens in the first 10 minutes of Watchmen. It's brilliant. It's brilliant the way that they re-examine the Superman narrative in the first 10 minutes of this historically tragic event. And basing it in historical facts, like the Tulsa race massacre actually happened. I had family members who are from Tulsa who I've got, you know, great uncles and great, you know, great cousins who were there. And I remember when I that's when I knew I was like, oh, this show is something different. Because one, I had never seen the Tulsa massacre actually talked about. Yeah. I knew, you know, it was talked about, you know, black people and like my family's from Oklahoma. So we knew about it. But as soon as they started doing it, I was like, oh, yeah. oh. And there's no way to watch those 10 minutes and not yeah. see Superman. There's no way. No way. Yeah. No way. They, that was deliberate. Oh, for sure. And it's funny because, the you know, I noticed it the, watching it the first time. And I remember talking with a friend the next day and was like, oh, did you, what about the Superman? And he didn't catch it. And when I like explained it to him, like he had to literally sit down because he was so impacted by that. <laughs> he couldn't believe he missed it, number one. But number two, he was just so impacted by the the creative framework that they built around the show. Mm-hmm. And for our purposes, even though the show, you know, begins with this little boy who grows up to be, you know, Lewis Gossett Jr.'s character, that little boy and that character is, is not the hero that we're going to follow. They subvert the hero's journey and they turn this into a heroine's journey. I love it. Absolutely. And I think it's important to understand the difference between the two. And of course, the queen that is Maureen Murdoch had a perfect encapsulation of that. She says that women find their way back to themselves, not by moving up and out into the light like men, but by moving down into the depths of the ground of their Mm. being. And that is 100% the story of Angela Abar. And I think that is why Watchmen was so good, because we've never seen the heroine's journey. We've seen the hero's journey with a woman yes. plugged in. Well, the, you bring up something important here, because the, the hero's journey, you know, jo- Joseph Campbell's classic, you know, motif, which he never called the hero's journey, by the way, he always called uh, the hero's adventure, but has come to be known as the hero's journey. It, it typically has always been a a male hero. And then when we became so enlightened, we said, oh, we've got to start telling the story of women. 
as you said, we just started plugging women into the hero's journey, which is basically what happens with Rey in Star Wars. It's what happens with Diana and Wonder Woman. And as you mentioned, the external goal that is so key to a hero's journey is not necessarily the the core of the narrative when it comes to you know the heroine's journey. Absolutely not. I think the core of the narrative for the heroine's journey is going to that depth and examining that shadow that's within. I think it's going down rather than like trying to achieve these things and achieve these goals and rise up out of the light. It's examining that depth, that shadow, that darkness that we haven't wanted to touch, whether that's family trauma, generational trauma, trauma we've been through. That was the story of the heroine's journey. And that's the story of Angela Abar. Well, it is the story of Angela Abar, and I I couldn't help but thinking as I watched it about the oldest heroine's journey that I'm familiar with, and it's it's a myth that we reference often on this show, and it's it's the descent of Inanna, and you know I know we've referenced it before on the show, but I, I thought it might be helpful today actually for me to just give a very brief summary of that myth so that people know what the the key beats in that myth are. And you know this is something that, by the way, that Maureen Murdoch talks about in her book, and she uh, explores the descent of Inanna. But it, it's the first place in narrative that I'm aware of that we really see this idea of of a woman going down and into herself in so many ways in a psychological sense. So here are, I'm going to actually read you from a a translation of the Descent of Inanna. And it begins by saying, from the great above, she set her mind toward the great below. What a powerful introduction. From the great above, she set her mind toward the great below. My lady abandoned heaven, abandoned earth, to the netherworld she descended. She girds herself up with beautiful ornaments and protection for battle. She enters the underworld, and at the gate she meets Neti, who's the chief gatekeeper. And Neti asks Anana who she is. And Anana tells her that she is the queen of heaven and has come to attend the funeral of her sister's husband that has been killed. And over the the course of the narrative, Anana passes through the seven gates of the underworld. And at each gate, she is stripped of some piece of clothing or protection each time being told not to question the rights of the netherworld. Eventually, Anana comes fully naked before her sister and the seven judges of the netherworld. And the judges end up speaking the word that tortures the spirit, and Anana is turned into a corpse. She is then hung from a wooden stake, and she hangs there in the dark for three days before rising from the dead and arising from the underworld. Now, by the way, do you hear any similar ideas that that we may hear in other religious traditions or mythological traditions of someone uh, descending to the underworld, someone being hung on a piece of wood for their, their sins, and then spending three days in the dark before rising from the dead? There's some, there's some familiarities here. Kind of sounds like Easter. <laughs> kind of sounds like a yeah. guy named yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's uh, there's a lot that we could unpack about the descent of Inanna. But Tori, just as, as a woman, you know, hearing this story of this woman who descends from heaven, who, you know, has, has adorned herself and girded herself. And then at each gate in the underworld, something is, is stripped from her before the final death and resurrection. How does that hit you? Like, what, what comes to mind for you? What, what are, how are you impacted by that story? It almost brings me to tears, to be honest, because I think it so perfectly encapsulates being mm. a woman and how our journey to the other side is not the same journey as a yeah. man. And I think a lot of times, even for myself, I've been like, oh, no, I can power through this. Oh, I don't need to look at that. I, I know where the wound is, but I don't need to examine it right now. And it's when you have those levels of clothing and protection and vulnerabilities stripped away and you have to look at the pain and you have to sit there and you have to examine that darkness. That's when the real work Mm. happens. 
that's when you're going to be able to grow and become stronger is when you actually look at that darkness. And I think culturally, we're not taught to do that. We're taught to just push ahead because that's a very patriarchal point of view. Yeah, I'm just like power through, just get through it instead of like, no, sit in it, examine that. There's something very feminine about accepting of what's going on and sitting in it and dealing Mm. with it. So when I hear that, that is very, it just touches something very almost primal in me of like, yeah, that's what I need Mm. to do. That's the feminine talking. That's the divine feminine, as people say. Wow. That's moving to me just to hear you talk about it. This part of the, the narrative, something is stripped away at each gate. It feels like, you know, mm. when we talk about heroine's journeys, you know, in the, the different films we see these in, even in Angela Abar's, you know, journey, she she does have things stripped away over the course of the narrative, you know, in order to come to terms with who she is basically that that mm-hmm. inner journey i i know i i'm curious to get your your thought about in the 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 story she's reluctant for her children to fully know who she is but that's stripped away is it that that privacy in some ways mm-hmm. ends up being stripped away she's put up this protection to to not have to deal with her grandfather. Yeah. And uh, is, is it her grandfather or her father? It's her, Louis Custard, that's yeah, her grandfather. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, she, she has this protection of, of, you know, not wanting to have to, to deal with him, mm-hmm. you know, and that ends up being stripped away. What do you see happening in her character over the course of the series? You know, is, is these different things are stripped away from her and she's going down deeper into her journey of who she is. You know, it's interesting. It's like through the first, I think it's four episodes before she takes Mm -hmm. nostalgia. She's examining it, but she's still got guards up. She's like, I'm going to look into this, but I still have guards up. It's when she becomes kind of in like this catatonic state that she has to examine the trauma. That she literally is forced to sit in and witness the literal generational trauma that her family went through and go back and revisit losing her parents. And so I think it's interesting that it was almost like a, it took the time of like, you need to examine this. You need to look at this yeah. wound. That became so powerful that she was forced to be put in that position. And I think a lot of times, especially when you were mentioning her children, so many women want to be a superwoman mm. for their kids. And, you know, I even have seen that with my own mom where I'm like, I don't really know when I was younger, I didn't really know much about my mom as a human being. I knew her Mm -hmm. as my mom. And I think my mom was a single mom raising three kids. She was like, I'm in mom mode. And I think a lot of times women have to take on all these things to be this otherworldly mom, career woman, all of these different things, instead of this whole human being who has trauma, who has pain. And in Watchmen, we're for, we see Angela confront that pain and become stronger yeah. for it. Yeah. And that's what's so powerful about that. And that's why I think she resonates in a more human way to me, but also in very much a superhero yeah. way, like very much in a superhero way. It's just different than the journey we've seen presented yeah. before. Well, you know, the episode where we see her childhood in Vietnam and where we see, you know, how she first comes into contact with this, this idea of this character, you know, Sister Knight. And then she has this very traumatic experience, you know, this, this witnessing of, of something very traumatic. I don't know what, you know, that, that scene, it was very sad to me, but I, I have to imagine, you know, that scene probably means something different to women just just watching that sort of loss of innocence in some ways you know of of this young woman this child do you remember you know your experience in in uh, watching the scene yeah i think it was a seeing and i'm i don't hopefully i don't get emotional about it but it was kind of like there's the first mm. wall and you know as a woman how many walls you've been mm. built up And you know how long it takes to break those Mm. down. And you know she'll never come back from that. And not having that 
mother and father figure, you know, oh, she's never, this is why she's the way she is. Like, this is why she's compartmentalized herself. And so it's almost like you, there's something in you that becomes like, oh, honey, I'll take care of you because I know that you're going Mm. through this. And it was just, it broke my heart, but you immediately knew like, oh, from her family's generational trauma to now, we're seeing how she's being built. Yeah, It's like seeing the superhero form. It's her, it's her Superman story. You see it. Yeah, that that's that's interesting. You say it's it's her Superman story, it's her origin story, it's her mm-hmm. it's her transcendence story. You know where she she begins to become something else, and mm-hmm. that you know as every person experiences trauma. I, I think one of the things in in reading Maureen Murdoch's book that this this series does really well is it really the book and the series both articulate that women's trauma seems to be different than men's. There's a different experience of trauma, even if they experience the same traumatic event or type of traumatic event because of who someone who, you know, primarily identifies with the feminine, the way they're going to experience that is different than someone who primarily identifies with the masculine. But I also you know, one of the, the things in Maureen's book that, that becomes really interesting to me is the, the necessity of the feminine and the feminine journey in the healing of the masculine wound. Mm. That there's 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 a type of healing that occurs there. And we, we could do a whole nother episode, you know, on, on masculine healing. But our, our emphasis here is the heroine's journey. But but I, I think it's important that men not write off the heroine's journey as saying, oh, that's for women. That's not for me. That's you know, that's that is it's so essential to recognize that the masculine and feminine journey are so intertwined and inter interconnected that we we do ourselves a great disservice as men to discount or or not deeply consider the heroine's journey. I think it would behoove so many men or people who connect with the masculine to look at that because I think it's, listen, everyone has masculine and feminine energies within all of us. We're not just one. We're not binary. But the heroine's journey is so insular. It's so going into the depths and that to me is not gender yeah. specific. That's something that we can all use to become better people is to examine yeah. ourselves, to figure out where our pain is, where our trauma is and how we can heal that. I think there is something, the healing, it comes from the feminine. I think that's always kind of been associated yeah. with that, but the masculine needs to be healed too. And I think there's so much to learn no matter what you identify with, with the heroine's journey. I think it should be required reading for everyone. I I agree. Every episode, pull a skeleton from our own closet. And, you know, oftentimes uh, we we pull something that is uh, embarrassing or, or something that is truly, you know, abhorrent that we have a mistake we've made. And I, I hope I don't disappoint uh, today because <laughs> I, I my skeleton that I want to bring today is that I was probably 15 years old before I realized there was a difference between the word heroine that meant a, a woman who was a hero <laughs> and the word heroine, which referred to an illicit drug. <laughs> um, it might have even been 16 or 17. I might have been behind the wheel of a car and, and <laughs> not yet able to distinguish between those two words. And I remember being a teenager and it finally becoming clear to me that, you know, when someone would talk about, you know, a heroin that they weren't referring to a drug. You know, I, I finally learned, no, when someone's talking about drug, they don't say a heroin. They just say heroin. <laughs> you know, I didn't I didn't have any experience with drugs. I didn't know if, you know, it's like, let me buy a heroin, please. I'd like to buy two heroines, please. Yeah, two exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I'm happy to announce that eventually in my teen years, I, I did figure out the difference between, you know, a heroine, a, a hero, who um, identifies as a female and in heroin the the, the substance uh, of of, 
an illegal nature. So that's that's embarrassing. But, um, you know, that's my skeleton. Key. But honestly, <laughs> I feel like a lot of us did that. They sound exactly well, the they same. They do. And yet the context, <laughs> you know, should have, have given different. me a hint, you know. The context should have been helping me out there, Tori. And I mean, maybe if you heard Heroin's Journey, you'd be like, man, that yeah. drug is taking a, a roundabout way to get to where it yeah, needs to no, go. Yeah, I, no, I do have some friends who have been on the heroin journey <laughs> uh, before, but it's, yeah, it's nothing to celebrate. I'll say that for them. Yeah. So. How about you? What, uh, what, what do you have that might be mortifying to bring to us today? It's not mortifying. It was more of like... My therapist was like, duh, Tori. <laughs> so my first time reading The Heroine's Journey, I immediately like went to my therapist and was like, oh my gosh, this is my life. Let's talk about him. You heard of this book? And she was like, everyone's heard of this book. And I was like, oh yeah, I haven't been enlightened as well. And then I just sat there quietly and I was like, yep, uh-huh, yep, you're right. I just really thought like I had discovered this. This was my journey. My journey was to present the heroine's journey to my psychologist. Tori, I wish I had a nickel for every time I think I have discovered something that no one else, you know, has. It turns out in the age of the Internet, everyone knows everything all the time. Nothing is ever new news to anyone. I just got so excited. I know. It's the worst. It's the worst. Hopefully she's still my therapist, so it's fine. (laughs) She, she forgave, forgave you. That's good. That's good. <laughs> well, we, we, it is an exciting book and we, you know, can often try and, and think about, you know, the heroine's journey as a single archetype of the heroine. You know, my confusion over, you know, what a heroine was in some ways is a, a confusion that many of us still have because yeah. we don't fully always know what the archetype of the heroine entails. Oftentimes we think of it as, oh, that's just a female hero. It, it sort of goes back yep. to the Wonder Woman and Ray from Star Wars. It's it's a hero's journey. We're just plugging a woman into, you know, this thing. And, you know, one thought that I had in in considering this is that, you know, these feminine archetypes cannot be contained in a single expression. You know, when it comes to the heroine on this journey, you know, there's so many archetypes. There's the queen, there's the lover, the maiden, the mother, the sage, the mystic. One of my favorites is the huntress, you know, that we we see, you know, this archetype of Artemis. And, you know, there's there's films like The Hunger Games that we see the, the Artemis archetype, you know, played out with this huntress type heroine. But I, I think This is something I'm learning is that that heroine archetype, she defies a single expression. And and I have Mm -hmm. to stop looking for her to express herself in a singular archetype. I think it forces all of us to do that. It kind of forces you to see, oh, there's mess here. Or this isn't, she's not easily put away into a package. That's the definition of the heroine is like she cannot be contained in this one archetype. And that's hard for me, for someone who loves archetypes um, and always felt like I have to choose one or that's the one that I identify with. I think even as you get older and you experience more things, you realize that's not how the world works. And that's not what the real heroine is. The real heroine is and the real hero are all these different things. Well, I'm so excited to bring in our guest. And, you know, Dr. Maureen Murdoch, she's an author, she's an educator, she's a psychotherapist, a volunteer in the prison system. She's a photographer. This is a woman of many talents who contains many layers. And she's written numerous books, but most famously, she's written The Heroine's Journey, which is being re-released in celebration of its 30th anniversary this year. On a personal note, Maureen honored me by serving as the chair of my dissertation when I got my PhD and has become a dear, dear friend. And I am so, so excited to welcome Maureen Murdoch to Skeleton Keys. Dr. Maureen Murdoch, we are so excited to have you on Skeleton Keys. Welcome to our show. Oh, thank you, John and Tori. I'm excited too. 
Well, I tell you, you have become synonymous with this concept of the heroine's journey, and you wrote one of the most important books that uh, mythologists look at for really understanding the journey of women in stories and the journey of women in life. Uh, your, your book really seemed to transcend just storytelling from a narrative perspective and also really uh, embraced how we live our stories. I wonder um, if you could talk to us a little bit about the origin of uh, the Heroine's Journey book and how it came to be and what made you decide to write that book? Okay, so you want its creation myth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, I was writing it in the late 80s. I had a full psychotherapy practice in Venice and Santa Monica, and I had been uh, working primarily with women and, and couples and families, but primarily with women who had taken a very masculine defined hero's journey in, in their lives. And at the same time, well, at the end of the 1970s, Joseph Campbell, who was, as you know, the great mythologist of the 20th century and who continues to be the great mythologist of the 21st century. Anyway, he had been coming out to Santa Barbara to teach at what was called the Human Relations Institute, which has now become Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara. But he was also, at the time, being filmed doing that whole series on the power of myth. And when he would come out from New York to Santa Barbara, I had the opportunity and privilege to be an assistant. And so I got to know Joe fairly well. And at that time, I had been looking at, you know, the monomyth of the hero's journey and working with both men and women in groups, uh, nine-month groups where we were going through the stages of the hero's journey. And the more I was working with that, the more I began to realize that it did not really address the issues of women, particularly in regards to our personal and cultural wounds as, as women in the culture. So I came up with the monomyth or the map of the heroine's journey. And in the early 80s, I went back to New York to, to meet with Mr. Campbell. I always want to say Dr. Campbell. And I showed him the map. And he, as you probably read in the book, said to me at the time, women don't need to make a journey, Maureen. They're the place that everyone is trying to get to. And of course, I'm sure he meant mythologically the feminine is the place that everyone is trying to get to, but that's not what he said. And so I just, you know, just I said, no, that's not true. You know, the women that I work with in therapy and the women in my groups, I was teaching, writing, uh, creative writing at the time. And my friends, we're, we're all on a journey. It may be very different than the stereotypical masculine journey, but it, it exists. And so it became really my calling to develop the heroine's journey. And it took me eight years to flesh out those stages. And uh, John, you'll just be amazed, <laughs> as I am, but I just found the letter from uh, Campbell saying to me, it was lovely seeing you, and uh, you gave me a lot to think about. <laughs> wow. Oh, my word. Yeah, I did not remember that I had it, but in this recent move, I was going through files, and there it is, the, the hollowed signature of Joseph Campbell. <laughs> a kind of affirmation that just kind of reappeared. Yeah, well, it was basically an affirmation saying, okay, you've given me a lot to think about, but I don't know anything about the woman's journey. You know, and the more I thought about it, you know, as you, as you both know, his wife was Jean Erdman. 
um, who in a sense was his muse. And she was not in the same position that I was in my generation or women after me who were trying to juggle work and family. You know, she had this extraordinary mentor who was supporting her journey as as a woman uh, in her art. But for most of the women of my particular generation, and this was, of course, the mid 80s and 90s, you know, we were trying to figure out how to live life, how to have families and how to work in the work world and try to find some balance. So, you know, when he said, I don't really know anything about the feminine journey, he didn't. I mean, he he knew the feminine journey from an artist's point of view. So that's the origin story. And I can continue on that or uh, not. <laughs> Well, I just think in terms of you were talking about that Mr. Campbell said, I don't know anything about that. How have women responded to it, to the to their monomyth, to hearing a difference? Because when I, for myself, when I read the book, it was like coming home. It was like, oh, yeah, this is my journey. Not that the hero's myth didn't resonate, but it didn't resonate in the same way. So how have women responded to it? There was a tremendous response. I mean, when it first came out, it was translated. It's been translated into 13 languages. So women all over the world really resonated with it. And I think it's because um, it is written from the perception or from the point of view of a father's daughter, because I am personally a father's daughter. But we're all, in a sense, fathers, daughters, because we live in a primarily mas- masculine-defined culture. So I, I think there was the naming of, okay, there's been a, a deep wounding of the feminine from the very beginning that a lot of women had not yet identified. So from the wounding of the feminine at the very beginning, there was that identification or emulation of the masculine. And that's when the split started. So I think that's why so many women identified with it. And so many women, you know, wrote to me. I I mean, from the very beginning, I was getting letters from all over the world, particularly from women who found themselves in very masculine defined work environments like computer science, saying, you know, I haven't connected to my own spiritual nature since I started working in these industries. So I think it was the naming of the wounding that really got people's, women's attention and and many men's attention too, because men would come to the book readings that I was doing at the time and say, you know, this isn't just a woman's journey. This is definitely my journey as well. And it had to do with that relationship with the culture that was denigrating feminine values. You know, I, I'm so glad you said that, Dr. Murdoch, because I, as a man, w- was deeply impacted, you know, by the book and by the articulation of the journey in the book. And so much of it uh, gave language to my own experiences in trying to get in touch with uh, the, the, the feminine. And I, I love, love, love that, you know, we can see that journey in stories like, you know, uh, Star Wars or Wonder Woman. But I also love that we seem to be seeing that journey play out in the world even right now in the midst of this COVID crisis. I, I heard you say something recently about the, the role of the feminine and the way that women are leading during this COVID crisis as opposed to, to men. I, I wonder if you can talk about that a bit. Oh, I'd love to talk about it because it's just really been such a stark difference. If you think about people like uh, Arden in uh, New Zealand and Merkel in Germany and uh, President Tsai Ing-wen in Taiwan, the premier of Iceland and of Norway. These are women who uh, have been very 
clear in terms of messaging. There's been no confusion. They set limits right away. They started the, the lockdown right away. Their people felt cared for by them. Their people felt like they could trust them. And when I started to look at the different leadership styles, masculine leadership styles, and this isn't true, certainly, of all male leaders, but the, the ones that we're having to deal with have been the worldview is about competition. The worldview of the feminine is about collaboration. So, in you know, specifically with trust, uh, Trump, not trust, <laughs> Trump, he has seen this as a war to dominate, uh, to conquer all of those very masculine aggressive terms, whereas the, the women are talking about honoring experts, collaborating with experts, bringing in everyone that they needed to uh, take care of their people. They worked with, or they led with assertion rather than aggression. The communication was clear. It was not confusing. The, the one that just amazed me was when President Trump said, I'm not responsible. <laughs> Whereas the women leaders say, I'm responsible and you too are responsible to take care of yourselves and each other. I loved that, you know, if you think about Trump in terms of what he sees as a demonstration of strength, his demonstration of strength is to not wear a mask, whereas the women lead by example, they wear masks. Prime Minister Arden in New Zealand, I don't know whether you saw any of her uh, speeches, but she would talk to the nation wearing her sweatshirt at home. And she also spoke to the children and said, you know, um, the Easter Bunny at that time is an essential worker, as is the Tooth Fairy. So, you know, she reached out. So it's all about relationship. These women know how to relate. They know how to coordinate. They know how to create a community. Many of the masculine leaders just are blustering. They don't know what to do and they won't ask for advice and they denigrate the scientists. One of the great things about Merkel that has been said about her, because she came up as a scientist, is that she has the brain of a scientist and the heart of a minister's daughter. And we need that balance, the balance of the masculine and feminine. So I think it's been extraordinary to see these two differences writ large so that we can see the difference between a feminine style of leadership and a masculine style of leadership. It's interesting, I'm kind of to piggyback off of what John said, Dr. Murdoch, especially kind of in this time of political upheaval and social justice upheaval, that there's kind of becoming a reckoning with generational trauma of American generational trauma. And kind of like we were saying, looking at the wound, it's almost kind of like we're going on the heroine's journey more so than we are choosing the hero's journey, or there's a push for that. There's a push for more community and less aggression. Did, do you see that with what's going on with like the Black Lives Matter movement and all of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're starting to uncover all of this unconscious bias, you know, whether it's bias about uh, African-Americans or Latinos or Native Americans or women. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's just so embedded in our culture. And I think it's so beautiful watching all of the images of the demonstrations where all of these young people are for the most part wearing the mask, still doing social distancing and being fierce, you know, and being clear in their messaging. And what I've noticed is uh, a lot of the people who are holding bullhorns and who are trying to keep the demonstrators in a safe space are women, mm -hmm. are women of color, absolutely. Yeah, so it, I think it's so exciting to see how this, well, it's many generations who are standing up for human rights. 
but particularly the young, particularly the young who have had the experience growing up in school and on in team sports of being with all different kinds of people. That's made a huge difference. Dr. Murdoch, you, uh, the heroine's journey, uh, was it 25 years ago this year? No, it's 30 years ago, John. That's- 30 years ago <laughs> this year. Can, yeah. The new 30th anniversary edition is coming out here this year, which we highly recommend people pick up and, and purchase. Can you talk a little bit about what has changed since the, the first draft you, you wrote of the book to now this 30th anniversary edition? You know, how, how has uh, the, the role of women changed? How has the, the heroine's journey changed over that time? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> What I've really noticed is the focus for women has changed. The focus is much more on identity, on equal relationship, on collaboration, on connection, on empowerment. And I've been looking at the difference between authority and power. So there's more focus on authority rather than power, specifically power over. This year, as you know, we've had a record-breaking number of uh, female candidates for president. I mean, that's never happened before. It's so exciting. 25% of the Congress is our women. Uh, we have three women on the Supreme Court. We had this wonderful explosion of the hashtag Me Too movement. One of my favorites is that the U.S. World Soccer team won the World Soccer Championship and opened doors for world soccer everywhere. So not just in the United States. I would say that the the focus has been moving away from this very masculine-driven journey to the people really are trying to find balance in their lives and they're naming that and they're demanding that in their relationships. I, I hear that a lot. The, the other, other place where I've seen it because I teach memoir writing is that more and more women are writing, more and more women are uh, getting published, more and more women are writing screenplays. I mean, the woman's voice is, has come to the fore. That was not true in the early 90s, even. When I was teaching memoir at UCLA, uh, teaching memoir classes, the people who were coming to those classes were primarily men who wanted to write about their challenges and their successes. And then more and more women started to come and talk about their emotional lives and the fact that they may have been in Los Angeles growing up Chicana and the struggle for their families. So they were writing about diversity and all of a sudden the men started to drift away and memoir really has become not, not just a domain of women, but certainly the personal eye has been very important. So those are some of the ways. I mean, there's many, many more ways, but um, that's that's what I'm particularly aware of. And I guess another thing in psychotherapy is people speaking honestly about sexual abuse, about domestic abuse, and dealing with it. So that you know, Tori, as you said about generation generational trauma that maybe this generation can be the one that will deal with heal generational trauma and not carry it forward. How do you hope that the heroine's journey evolves in the next 30 years with this next generation that we've been talking about? How do you hope how do you hope that they put this into practice? Well, what I have seen particularly in the pandemic, it, it has felt to me like When we first went into lockdown, we were very much in the descent. Um, And then when we started to come out of it, there's been this. So what I would say is the next stage is healing the wounded masculine. And that to me 
is really the work of you, John, and you, Tori, <laughs> and and men. You know, write, uh, writing a new masculine narrative so that we can then start to have a balance, a relationship, a interrelationship between the masculine and the feminine. And certainly, specifically, new language. We need new languaging. We need new languaging for the words feminine and masculine. So, you know, those, that's your job as well. <laughs> We take that job seriously. We will run with those those assignments because I, I think you're spot on. I think that is the next stage. That's that's the work. And I, I do think new language is going to help us so much. And I, I think, um, you know, uh, women have done so much in, in pushing this conversation forward in the last 30 years. It is time for men to step up and redefine their, their own story and to offer a better story than they've offered uh, before. And that's um, that's on us. So yeah. men, we got to do it. We got to step up. We've, we've got to do it. Dr. Murdoch, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you taking time to come on and uh, talk to us about these things. You know, the other day I saw uh, uh, Brie Larson had tweeted a photo of her reading your book. And I, I thought, man, there's Captain Marvel reading the heroine's journey. That is the most meta thing I've ever seen. So I know that your your message is getting out. I know your work is getting out and it's impacting people in the, the highest corners of culture. So huge thank you to for coming on our show, but huge thank you for the work that you've done and the way that you've continued to push the cultural conversation around myth and the journey of the heroine forward. Thank you, John and Tori. I want to just say one more thing, if I may. The Heroine's Journey workbook also comes out August 18th with the Heroine's Journey. And when I first wrote that, it was for people, men and women, to take the journey in a sense through all of the stages, whether they wanted to do it on an individual or a group level. So I'm really pleased that Shambhala is reissuing that because I get requests for that all the time and it's practical. You know, it gives people a practical way to move forward. So thank you both. It's wonderful for me to to talk with you and to see you both, you know, I was imagining what you look like, Tori and John. I have great love for John. So uh, <laughs> you too. Thank you. I am floating on clouds. I'm floating on clouds. I I feel like it's so rare in life that we get to talk to one of our heroines. And for me, Maureen Murdoch is a heroine. Like that happened. I know. Like we talked to her. I know. <laughs> That's so wild. I know. <laughs> so amazing. I Wow. Well, I know we said it in the interview, but please go out and buy the updated edition of The Heroine's Journey. It's the 30th anniversary of it this year. And this is its just such an important book. You really need to not only read it, but you should own this book. This is mm -hmm. one to own. You know, as Maureen was talking about uh, different aspects of the heroine's journey, Tori, I don't mean to interview you or put you on the spot, but I, I just I think it's so interesting to hear about women's experiences with this book and with this idea of the heroine's journey. And I, I just wonder, you know, are there parts of the heroine's journey that as you've, you know, walked through your life or as you've, you know, journeyed through womanhood, you know, that have have really resonated or, or impacted or are there things, you know, ideas from the book or frameworks that Maureen put around um, certain part uh, parts of uh, women's journey that come to mind, you know, that you you want to speak to? Um, I think one, every aspect of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole awakening to feelings of death, hmm. of spirit, you know, of kind of that that emptiness yeah. was really powerful for me mm. because for me, I, I think when you hit a rock bottom is where you're going to find the real gold. Yeah. That's when you're actually going to do the work. Yeah. And so to read about 
that as absolutely yes this it's necessary mm. that taking that path is the path that a heroine is supposed to take it was so reassuring it was like oh i'm not alone in this mm. it just it was kind of like oh not that i would ever like have the the dream of, of calling maureen my sister yeah. but it felt like that yeah 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 of like oh i'm not i'm i have other women in this with me i have other you know people going through this journey with me. So that was huge. And even the sense of reaching out to the feminine, of wanting to be a part of it, I kind of have always, always identified more with the masculine and always put the masculine on a pedestal Mm. of you're supposed to, if you act like this, like that's how you're going to get power. Yeah. And the heroine's journey is so, it was so healing for me because it was like the feminine is powerful too. Yeah. That there's yeah. power in receiving. There's power in in being in that space as well. Yeah. And so it's really helped me in terms of integrating. Mm. That's so beautiful. And so I am forever in her debt wow. for that. That is just, wow, that's very, that's moving. That's really beautiful. It, it's, since we've been thinking about, you know, this this idea of the heroine's journey, it's sort of fun to think through all of the different times that I encountered the heroine's journey in films and books and didn't even recognize it, didn't even really understand what was happening. I, I, I thought about the other day, why you know, do I love the movie Silence of the Lambs so much? And it's this amazing classical heroine's journey. You know, Why do I love the movie Room with Brie Larson mm-hmm. so much? incredible heroine's journey of going down deep into the self. You know, even, even the, the Disney film Brave, you know, or, or Moana is, yep. is the, these are stories of, of, of a heroine who is really discovering something within themselves by going into the deep and by confronting that wound, you know, that. Can I ask as a man? Yeah. How does it resonate with you? I think. For me, it has been a journey of understanding how it it works and resonates in my life because, you know, I think I've went through different stages, you know, where at first you're like, oh, that's that's a woman's journey that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with me. And then you begin to consider, oh, wait, but there's there's some experiences here that I I, too, have had. And so you sort of like reflect as a man, you know, like you, you try and see yourself in those experiences. And then the the more recent experiences I've had with, you know, the heroine's journey has been more looking within myself to say, now what parts of me, you know, the the feminine that resides within me that has been on the these journeys. So it's 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 personalizing it to you know my own experience but perhaps all of that pales in comparison to what understanding the heroine's journey has done in helping me to better understand and relate to those who identify with the feminine who are in my life you know the the women and those that uh, identify you know with with those aspects of the feminine who have been a part of my life uh, helping me understand who they are better and so the most powerful experience i've had with the heroine's journey has been in listening it's not been in application even though i have applied a great deal of it in my own life the most powerful aspect has been in in listening to women express how this journey has has been their own experience uh just like you shared today that that is the treasure in all this for me is is better understanding the women that are important to me in, in my life and I'm hoping if you ask me that question, you know, five years from now, I would even have a better in answer for you and a more evolved answer because I feel like this is a journey. It is a process that I'm reconsidering uh, this. Sort of like you just said a few minutes ago with The Heroine's Journey is a book everyone should read. It's also a book I find we should reread. You know, I'm, mm. I'm reading it again uh, for a, a second time and getting completely different things from the book. 
it's kind of a, a tome yeah. to go yeah. back to and kind of check back in. And because I think it's always important to understand the hero's journey and the heroine's journey. It doesn't end. No, no, it does not. It's a cyclical thing. Yeah. Like you're always going to hit points where you're going to struggle. I think we're always constantly going to be on that turnaround. But that's what makes the beauty of it. And that's why you can always kind of go back and check in with this book, yeah. which you all should be reading. <laughs> And while the heroine's journey does not end, this podcast does. And we have reached that point in the episode today. Tori, if people are wanting to share with us their own experiences or or just say hello, which we would love, how can people get a hold of us? Please get a hold of us at skeletonkeyspodcast at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on the socials at skeletonkeyspod on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me at Tori Yates or on Twitter and Instagram as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at John, J-O-H-N-K-B-U-C-H-E-R or on Instagram at Telling a Better Story. This has been a delight I am so excited. I still can't believe we had Maureen Murdoch on the podcast. My mind is blown. I know. I know. I know. Well, it happened. I know. Well, let's all head off and and deeply, more deeply engage our own heroine's journey. We'll see you next time on Skeleton Keys. You've been listening to the Skeleton Keys podcast with Tori Yates Orr and John Booker, a podcast that unlocks the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. Contact us at skeletonkeyspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Skeleton Keys Pod. Skeleton Keys is a production of Sideshow Media Group. <laughs>